24. Mutinous Egyptian soldiers abandoned their country and their wives, and emigrated along the one line of slight resistance open to them into Ethiopia, to found there a new state and new families by marriage with native women, thus contributing to the amalgamation of races in the valley. The most pronounced types of the identity of a country with a river valley are found where strongly marked geographical boundaries, like deserts and mountains, emphasize the inner unity of the basins by accentuating their isolation from without. This is especially the case in high mountain regions, here canton or commune or county coincides with the river valley. Population hugs the margins of the streams where alone is soil fit for cultivation, and fairly level land suitable for dwellings. Above are the unoccupied heights, at once barrier and boundary. In the Alps, Salzburg is approximately identical with the valley of the Salzach, Uri with that of the Reus, the Belize with the upper Rhone, the Engadine with the upper Inn, Glorums with the Linth. Grobwinden or Grisons with the Upper Rhine, Valnina with the Atta. So in the Great Upheft area of the Himalayas, the state of Kashmir was originally the valley of the Upper Jhelum River, while Assam, in its correct delimitation, is the valley of the Brahmaputra between the Himalayan Gorge and the swamps of Bengal. In mountain regions which are also arid, the identity of a district with a stream basin becomes yet more pronounced, because here population must gather about the common water supply must organize to secure its fair distribution, and cooperate in the construction of irrigation channels to make the distribution as economical and effective as possible. Thus in Chinese Turkestan, the districts of Yarkand, Kashgar, Aksu and Kucha are identical with as many mountain tributaries of the Tarim, whose basin in turn comprises almost the whole of Chinese Turkestan. In all such desert and mountain rim valleys, the central stream attracts to its narrow hem of alluvial soil the majority of the population determines the course of the main high road, and is itself often the only route through the encompassing barriers, hence the importance attached to the river by the inhabitants, an importance reflected in the fact that the river often gives its name to the whole district, to the most ancient Greeks Aegyptos meant the river, whose name was later transferred to the whole land, for the narrow arable strip which constituted Egypt was the gift of the Nile, the Aryans, descending into India through the mountains on its northwest border, gave the name of Sindhu the flood, or, the ocean, to the first great river they met, in the mouth of Persians and Greeks the name was corrupted into Indus, and then applied to the whole country, but it still survives in its original form in the local designation of the Sin province, which comprises the valley of the Indus below the confluence of the five rivers, which again formed and named the original Punjab. Significantly enough the western political boundary of the Sindh extends into the barren foothills of Baluchistan only so far as the affluence of the Indus render the land arable by irrigation, for the Indus performs for the great province of the Sindh, biannual inundation and perennial irrigation, the same service that the Nile does for Egypt, the segregation of such districts, and the concentration of their interests and activities along the central streams have tended to develop in the population an intense but contracted national consciousness and to lend them a distinctive history. Their rivers become interwoven with their mythology and religion, are gods to be worshipped or appeased, become goals of pilgrimage, or acquire a peculiar sanctity. The Nile, Ganges, Jhana, Jordan, Tiber and Po are such sacred streams, while the Rhine figures in German mythology. From the uniting power of rivers it follows that they are poor boundaries. Only mountains and seas divide sharply enough to form scientific frontiers. Rivers may serve as political lines of demarcation and therefore fix political frontiers, but they can never take the place of natural boundaries. 
a migrating or expanding people tend always to occupy both slopes of a river valley. They run their boundary of race or language across the axis of their river basin, only under exceptional circumstances along the stream itself. The English-French boundary in the St. Lawrence Valley crosses the river in a broad transitional zone of mingled people and speech in and above the city of Montreal. The French-German linguistic frontier in Switzerland crosses the upper Rhone Valley just above Sierre, but the whole canton of the lies above the elbow of the river at Mardini shows fundamental ethnic unity, indicated by identity of head form, stature and coloring, where the Elbe flows through the low plains of North Germany. Its whole broad valley is occupied by a pure Teutonic population fair. Tall, long-headed, a more brunette type occupies its middle course across the uplands of Saxony, and speaks German like the downstream folk, but its upper course, hemmed in by the Ur and recent mountains, shows the short, dark and broad-headed people of the Bohemian Basin, speaking the Czech language, on the Danube, too. The same thing is true. The upper stream is German in language and predominantly Alpine in race stock down to the Austro-Hungarian boundary, from this point to the Drava mouth it is Hungarian, and from the Drava to the Iron Gate it is Serbo-Croatian on both banks. Lines of ethnic demarcation, therefore, cut the Elbe and Danube transversely, not longitudinally. See map page 223. The statements of Caesar and Pliny that the Seine and Marne form the boundary between the Gauls and Belgians and the Garam that between the Gauls and Aquitanians, must be accepted merely as general and preliminary, for exceptions are noted later in the text. Parisii, for instance, were represented as holding both banks of the Seine and Marne at their confluence, and the Gallic Vitorages were found on the Aquitanian side of the Garam estuary. Only under peculiar conditions do rivers become effective as ethnic, tribal or political boundaries. Most often it is some physiographic feature which makes the stream an obstacle to communication, and lends it the character of a scientific boundary. The division of the Alpine foreland of southern Germany first into tribal and later into political provinces by the Iller, Lech, In, and Salzach can be ascribed in part to the tumultuous course of these streams from the mountains to the Danube, which renders them useless for communication. The lower Danube forms a well-maintained linguistic boundary between the Bulgarians and Romanians except in the northwest corner of Bulgaria, where the hill country between the Timok River and the Danube has enticed a small group of Romanians across to the southern side. From this point down the stream, a long stretch of low marshy bank on the northern side, offering village sites only at the few places where the lowest terrace of Romania comes close to the river, exposed to overflows, strewn with swamps and lakes, and generally unfit for settlement, has made the Danube an effective barrier. Similarly, the broad, sluggish Shannon River, which spreads out to a lake bread that close intervals in its course across the boggy central plain of Ireland, has from the earliest times proved a sufficient barrier to divide the plain into two portions, Connaught and Meath, contrasted in history, in speech and to some extent even in race elements. A different cause gave the Thames its unique role among the larger English rivers as a boundary between counties from source to mouth. London's fortified position at the head of the Thames estuary closed the stream as a line of invasion to the early Saxons, and forced them to make dinners to the north and south of the river, which therefore became a tribal boundary, where navigation is peculiarly backward, a river may present a barrier, an instructive instance is afforded by the river Yo, which flows eastward through northern Bornu into a lake Chad, and serves at once as boundary and protection to the agricultural tribes of the Canary against the depredations of the Tibur robbers living in the Sahara or the northern grassland. 
but during the dry season from April to August, when the trickling stream is sucked up by the thirsty land and thirstier air, the Tibu horsemen sweep down on the unprotected canary and retreat with their booty across the vanished barrier. The primitive navigation by reed or brushwood rafts, practiced in this almost streamless district, affords no means of retreat for mounted robbers, so the raiding season opens with the fall of the river. For political boundaries, which are often adopted with little reference to a race distribution, rivers serve fairly well. They are convenient lines of demarcation and strategic lines of defense, as is proved by the military history of the Rhine, Danube, Ebro, Po, and countless other streams. On the lower Zambesi Livingstone found the territories of the lesser chiefs defined by the rivulets draining into the main river. The leader of the Makololo formally adopted the Zambesi as his political and military frontier, though his people spread and settled beyond the river. Long-established political frontiers may become ethnic boundaries, more or less distinct, because of protracted political exclusion. To the Romans, the Danube and Rhine as a northeastern frontier had the value chiefly of established lines in an imperfectly explored wilderness, and of strategic positions for the defense of an oft-assailed border, but the long maintenance of this political frontier resulted in the partial segregation and hence differentiation of the people dwelling on the opposite banks. Poor as a scientific boundary, a river is not satisfactory even as a line of demarcation, because of its tendency to shift its bed in every level stretch of its course. A political boundary that follows a river, therefore, is often doomed to frequent surveys. The plantations on the meanders of the lower Mississippi are connected now with one, now with the other of the contiguous states. As the great stream straightens its course after the almost annual overflow, the Rio Grande has proved a troublesome and expensive boundary between the United States and Mexico. Almost every rise sees it cutting a new channel for itself, now through Texas, now through Mexican territory occasioning endless controversies as to the ownership of the detached land, and demanding fresh surveys. Recent changes in the lower course of the Helmut between Nasralabad and the Sistan Swamp, which was adopted in 1872 as the boundary between Afghanistan and Persia, have necessitated a new demarcation of the frontier, and on this task a commission is at present engaged. In a like manner Strabo tells us that the river Achilles, forming the boundary between ancient Acarnania and Aetolia in western Hellas, by overflowing its delta region, constantly obliterated the boundaries agreed upon by the two neighbors, and thereby gave rise to disputes that were only settled by force of arms. Rivers tend always to be centers of population, not outskirts or perimeters. They offer advantages that had always attracted settlement fertile alluvial soil, a nearby water supply command of a natural highway for intercourse with neighbors and access to markets. Among civilized peoples fluvial settlements have been the nuclei of broad states, passing rapidly through an embryonic development to a maturity in which the old center can still be distinguished by a greater density of population. Only among savages or among civilized people who have temporarily reverted to primitive conditions in virgin colonial lands, do we find genuine riverine folk whose existence is closely restricted to their bordering streams. The river tribes of the Congo occupy the banks or the larger islands, while the land only three or four miles back from the stream is held by different tribes with whom the river Rhine people trade their fish. The latter are expert fishermen and navigators, and good agriculturists, raising a variety of fruits and vegetables. On the river banks at regular intervals are market greens, neutral ground, whither people come from up and downstream and from the interior to trade. Their long riparian villages consist of a single street, 
30 feet wide and often 2 miles long, on which face perhaps 300 long houses, fisher and canoe people line the well, the great northern tributary of the Congo, the same type appeared in South America in the aboriginal Caribs and Tupis dwelling along the southern tributaries of the Amazon and the affluents of the Paraguay, these were distinctly a water race, having achieved a meager development only in navigation, fishing and the cultivation of their alluvial soil. The ancient mound builders of America located their villages chiefly, though not exclusively, along the principal watercourses, like the Mississippi, Illinois, Miami, Wabash, Wisconsin, and Fox. On the very streams later dotted by the trading posts of the French voyageurs, the presence of the great waterways of Canada and the demand of the fur trade for extensive and easy communication made the early French colonists as distinctly a riverine people as the savage Congo tribes. Like these, they stretched out their villages in a single line of cabins and clearings, three or four miles long, facing the river, which was the King's Highway. Such a village was called a coat. One coat ran into the next, for their expansion was always longitudinal, never lateral. These riparian settlements lined the main watercourses of French Canada, especially the St. Lawrence, whose shores from Boper, 15 miles below Quebec, up to Montreal at an early date presented the appearance of a single street. Along the river passade the stately trading ship from France with its cargo of wives and merchandise for the colonists. The pirogue of the habitant farmer carrying his onions and grain to the Quebec market. The birch bark canoe of the adventurous voyager bringing down his winter's hunt of furs from the snowbound forests of the interior. And the fleet of Jesuit priests bound to some remote inland mission. On this water thoroughfare every dwelling faced. Hence land on the river was at a premium, while that two miles back was to be had for the taking. The original grants measured generally 766 feet in width and 7.660 in depth inland, but when bequeathed from generation to generation, they were divided up along lines running back at right angles to the all-important waterway. Hence each habitant farm measured its precious river front by the foot and its depth by the mile, while the cabins were ranged side by side in coffee neighborliness. The coat type of village, though eminently convenient for the Indian trade, was ill-adapted for government and defense against the savages, but the need for the communication supplied by the river was so fundamental, that it nullified all efforts of the authorities to concentrate the colonists in more compact settlements. Parkman says, one could have seen almost every house in Canada by paddling a canoe up the same Lawrence and Richelieu. The same type of land holding can be traced today on the Chaudière River where the fences run back from the stream like the teeth of a comb. It is reproduced on a larger scale in the long, narrow counties ranged along the lower St. Lawrence, whose shape points to the old fluvial nuclei of settlement. Similarly the early Dutch grants on the Hudson gave to the patroons for miles along the river and an indefinite extension back from the stream. In the early Connecticut River settlements, the same consideration of a share in the river and its alluvial bottoms distributed the town lots among the inhabitants in long narrow strips running back from the banks. In undeveloped countries, where rivers are the chief highways, we occasionally see the survival of a distinct race of boatmen amid an intruding people of different stock, preserved in their purity by their peculiar occupation, which has given them the aloofness of a caste. In the Kwantung province of southern China are 40.000 Tonku boat people who live in boats and pile dwellings in the Canton River. The Chinese, from whom they are quite distinct, regard them as a remnant of the original population, which was dislodged by their invasion and forced to take refuge on the water. They gradually established intercourse with the conquerors of the land, 
but held themselves aloof. They marry only among themselves, had their own customs, and enjoy a practical monopoly of carrying passengers and messages between the steamers and the shore at Makoto, Hong Kong and Canton. In the same way, the Middle Niger above Jout possesses a distinct aquatic people, the Somnos or Bosos, who earn their living as fishermen and boatmen on the river. They spread their villages along the Niger and its tributaries, and occupy separate quarters in the large towns like Jiao and Timbuktu. They are creatures of the river rather than of the land, and show great skill and endurance in paddling and poling their narrow dugouts on their long Niger voyages. Reference has been made before to the large river population of China who live on boats and rafts, and forward the trade of the vast inland waterways. These are people, differentiated not in race, but in occupation and mode of life constantly recruited from the congested population of the land. Allied to them are the trackers or towing crews whose villages form a distinctive feature of the turbulent upper Yangtze, and who are employed, sometimes 300 at a time, to drag junks up the succession of rapids above each island. Similarly the complex of navigable waterways centering about Paris, as far back as the reign of Tiberius Caesar, gave rise to the Navi Parisii or Guild of Mariners from whom the city of Paris derived its present coat of arms a vessel under full sail. These Lutetian boatmen handled the river traffic in all the territory drained by the same, Marne, and was, later, in the reign of Louis V, they were succeeded by the Mercator's Aquaterrasii, and from them sprang the municipal body appointed to regulate the river navigation and commerce. The location of the ancient tribe of the Parisii is typical of many other weak riverine folk who seek in the islands of a river protected position to compensate for their paucity of number. The Parisii, one of the smallest of the Gallic tribes, ill-matched against their populous neighbors, took refuge on ten islands and sandbars of the Seine and there established themselves. Stanley found an island in the Congo near the second cataract of Stanley Falls occupied by five villages of the Boswa who had taken refuge there from the attacks of the bloodthirsty Bakuma. During the Tartar invasions of Russia in the 13th and 14th centuries, bands of refugees from the surrounding country gathered for mutual defense on the islands of the Dnieper River, and became the nucleus of the Dnieper Cossacks, the Huron tribe of American Indians, reduced to a mere fragment by repeated Iroquois attacks, fled first to the islands of St. Joseph and Michilimackinac in late Huron and in 1856 to the Isle of Orléans in the St. Lawrence, but even this location under the guns of their French allies in Quebec failed to protect them, for the St. Lawrence was a highway for the war fleets of their implacable foe. A river island not only confers the negative benefit of protection, but affords a coin advantage for raids on the surrounding country, being to some extent proof against punitive attacks. It offers special facilities for depredations on parties crossing the river, here the divided current losing something of its force, is less of an obstacle, and the island serves as a resting place on the passage. Immunity from punishment breeds lawlessness. The Beitakahu, 50 years ago, inhabited the islands in the great southern bend of the Zambezi, utilized their location to allure wandering tribes onto their islands, under the pretext of ferrying them across, and then to rob them, till Spichuan, the great Makalolo chief, cleaned out their fastnesses and opened the river for trade. The islands in the wide stretches of the Lualaba River in the Bagamba country were described to a living stone as harboring a population of marauders and robbers, who felt themselves safe from attack. The same enviable reputation that achaves to the Budumas of the Lake Chad Islands, a weak, timid, displaced people, 
they nevertheless lose no chance of raiding the herds of the Sudanese tribes inhabiting the shores of the lake, and carrying off the stolen cattle on their wretched rafts to their island retreats. The protection of an island location is almost equaled in the peninsulas formed by the serpentines or meanders of a river, hence these are choice sites for fortress or settlement in primitive communities, where hostilities are always imminent and rivers the sole means of communication. The defensive works of the mound builders in great numbers occupied such river peninsulas. The neck of the loop was fortified by a single or double line of ditch and earthen wall, constructed from bank to bank of the encircling stream. This was exactly the location of Bizondio, now Bizonson, once the ancient stronghold of the Sequinian Eastern Gaul. It was situated in a loop of the Dubais, so nearly a circle that its course seems to have been described by a compass. Caesar says, while fortifications across the isthmus made the position of the town almost impregnable. Verona, lying at the exit of the great martial highway of the Brenner Pass, occupies just such a loop of the Adige, as does Capua on the Volturno, and Bern on the Ara. Shrewsbury, in the Middle Ages an important military point for the preservation of order on the marshes of Wales, is almost encircled by the River Severn, while a castle on the neck of the peninsula completes the defense on the land side. Grafrienet, at one time an exposed frontier settlement of the Dutch in Cape Colony, had a natural moat around it in the Sunday River, which here describes three-fourths of a circle. The need of protection felt by all colonists in new countries amid savage or barbarous people whom encroachment sooner or later makes hostile, leads them if possible to place their first trading posts and settlements on river islands, especially at the mouth of the streams, where a delta often affords the site required and where the junction of ocean and river highway offers the best facilities for trade. A river island fixed the location of the English settlement at Jamestown in Virginia, the French at Montreal and New Orleans, the Dutch at Manhattan and Van Rensselaer Island in the Hudson, the Swedes at Tynacum Island in the Delaware River a few miles below the mouth of the Schuylkill. St. Louis, located on a delta island of the Senegal River, is one of the oldest European towns in West Africa, and Bathurst. Founded in 1618 on a similar site at the mouth of the Gambia, has for centuries now been the safe outlet for the trade of the stream. Such island settlements at river mouths are a phenomenon of the outer edge of every coastal region, but inland stations for trade or military control also seek the protection of an island site. The Russians in the 17th century secured their downstream conquest of the Amur by a succession of river island forts, which recall Colonel Bard's early frontier post on an island in the Holston River and George Rogers Clark's military stockade on Corn Island in the Ohio, which became the nucleus of the later city of Louisville, more effective than rivers in the protection which they afford our swamps, neither solid land nor navigable water, their sluggish, passive surface raises an obstacle of pure inertia to the movements of mankind, hence they form one of those natural boundaries that segregate, in southern England, Romney Marsh, reinforced by the Wealdon Forest, fixed the western boundary of the ancient Saxon kingdom of Kemp by blocking expansion in that direction, just as the bordering swamps of the Liancoln rivers formed the eastern and western boundaries of Middlesex, the Fenland of the Wash, which extended in Saxon days from the highland about Lincoln south to Cambridge and Newmarket, served to hem in the angles of Norfolk and Suffolk on the west, so that the occupation of the interior was left to a later bands who entered by the estuaries of the Humber and Forth, in northern Germany the low cross valleys of the Spree, Hoffel and Netze rivers, bordered by alder swamps, were long a serious obstacle to communication, and therefore became boundaries of districts, 
just as the Verdanger Moor drew the dividing line between Holland and Hanover, swamp-bordered regions, as areas of natural isolation, guard and keep intact the people which they hold, therefore they are regions of survival of race and language. The scattered islets of the Fens of England furnished an asylum to the early British Celts from Teutonic attacks, and later protected them against dominant infusion of Teutonic blood. Hence today in the Fenland and in the district just to the south we find a darker, shorter people than in the country to the east or west. Similarly the White Russians, occupying the poor, marshy region of uncertain watershed between the sources of the Duna, Dnieper and Volga, had the purest blood of all the eastern Slavs. Though this distinction is coupled with poverty and retarded culture, a combination that anthropogeography often reveals, wholly distinct from the Russians and segregated from them by a barrier of swampy forests, we find the Leto-Lithuanians in the Baltic province of Kurland, speaking the most primitive form of flectional languages classed as Aryan, the isolation which preserved their archaic speech, of all European tongues the nearest to the Sanskrit, made them the last European people to accept Christianity. The great race of the Slavic winds, who once occupied all northern Germany between the Vistula and Elba, has left only a small and declining remnant of its language in the swampy forests about the sources of the Spree. See ethnographical map. Page 223. The band of marshlands stretching through Holland from the shallows Zuidersee east to the German frontier, has given to Friesland and the coast islands of Holland a peculiar isolation which has favored the development and survival of the peculiar Frisian dialect, that speech so nearly allied to Saxon English, and has preserved here the purest type of the tall, blonde dude among the otherwise mixed stock of the Netherlands, inaccessible to all except those familiar with their treacherous paths and labyrinthine channels. Swamps have always afforded a refuge for individuals and peoples, and therefore as places of defense they have played no inconspicuous part in history. What the dismal swamp of North Carolina and the cypress swamps of Louisiana were to the runaway slaves, that the Everglades of Florida have been to the defeated Seminoles, in that half-solid, half-fluid area, penetrable only to the native Indian who pulls his canoe along its tortuous channels of liquid mud, the Seminoles have set up their villages on the scattered hummocks of solid land, and there maintained themselves, a tribe of 350 souls despite all efforts of the United States government to remove them to the Indian Territory. The swamps of the Nile Delta have been the asylum of Egyptian independence from the time King Amisai took refuge there for fifty years during an invasion of the Ethiopians, to the retreat thither of Amirtias, a prince of size, after his unsuccessful revolt against the Persian conqueror Artaxerxes I. The Isle of Athelney among the marshes of the Parra River afforded a refuge to Alfred the Great and a band of his followers during the Danish invasion of Wessex in 878, while the Isle of Ely in the Fenland was another point of sustained resistance to the invaders. It was the Fenland that 200 years later was the last stronghold of Saxon resistance to William of Normandy. Here on the Isle of Ely the outlawed leader Hereward maintained Saxon independence till the conqueror at last constructed a long causeway across the marshes to the camp of refuge. The spirit of the marshlands is the spirit of freedom. Therefore these small and scarcely habitable portions of the land assume an historical dignity and generate stirring historical events out of all proportion to their size and population. Their content is ethical rather than economic. They attract to their fastnesses the vigorous souls protesting against conquest or oppression and then by their natural protection sustain and nourish the spirit of liberty. It was the water-soaked lowlands of the Rhine that enabled the early Batavians, Dittmarsher and Frieslanders to assert and to maintain their independence. 
generated the love of independence among the Dutch and helped them defend their liberty against the Spanish and French. So the Fenland of England was the center of resistance to the despotism of King John, who therefore fixed his headquarters for the suppression of the revolt at Lincoln and his military depot at Lynn. Later in the conflict of the barons with Henry III, Simon de Montfort and other disaffected nobles entrenched themselves in the islands of Ely and Axholm, till the provisions of Oxford in 1267 secured them some degree of constitutional rights. Four centuries later the same spirit sent many Fenlanders to the support of Cromwell, a river that spreads out into the indeterminate earth form of a marsh is an effective barrier, but one that gathers waters into a natural basin and forms a lake retains the uniting power of a navigable stream and also, by the extension of its area and elimination of its current, approaches the nature of an enclosed sea. Mountain rivers, characterized by small volume and turbulent flow, first become navigable when they check their impetuosity and gather their store of water in some lake basin. The whole course of the upper Rhone, from its glacier source on the slope of Mount Furka to its confluence with the Somme at Lyon, is unfit for navigation, except where it lingers in Lake Geneva. The same thing is true of the Reus in Lake Lucerne, the Upper Rhine in Lake Constance, the Arlington and Bryans, and the Linth in Lake Zurich. Hence such torrent-fed lakes assume economic and political importance in mountainous regions, owing to the paucity of navigable waterways. The lakes of Alpine Switzerland and Italy and of Highland Scotland form so many centers of intercourse and exchange. Even such small bodies of water as the Alpine lakes have therefore become goals of expansion, so that we find the shores of Geneva, Magyar, Lugano, and Garda, each shared by two countries, Switzerland, the Austrian Tyrol, and the three German states of Baden, Württemberg and Bavaria, have all managed to secure a frontage upon L.